be written uh, would work in our hearts and renew our minds so the mind of Christ our Saviour dwells in us. We pray this Lord in Jesus name. Amen. Please have a seat. And could you please turn back with me to uh, 1 Samuel. Page uh, 294. And uh, on the outline you received, it would be helpful to have the outline you received as you came in in front of you as well. It's in the middle pages of that. And we're looking today at 1 Samuel chapter 21, chapter 22, and chapter 23. Now for those of you who haven't been with us, like Victor, uh, or those of you who've been in crash, or those of you who've been sleeping in sermons, let me bring you up today, uh, where we are in the story. It's about 3000 BC, and we're in the land of Israel. God has brought his people into the land, He's given it to them. But they failed to trust him. And instead tried to get security from having a king like the other nations. And the first king, Saul, started off well. But somewhere along the line, he became more interested in himself than in God. His religion became only external. He disobeyed the word of God. And God rejected him as king. And God promised that he would appoint another king. A king for himself. Someone after his own heart. And he told the prophet Samuel to anoint David. To pour oil over him as a sign that that God would make him king. And the spirit of God which had been upon Saul left Saul. And came upon David. And so David was the anointed one. Which in Hebrew is Messiah. And the Greek is the Christ. David was catapulted to fame when when he, a shepherd boy, represented Israel against the Philistine giant, Goliath. He he defeated Goliath, saved God's people. The first of many military victories that God gave his people through David. And David was always loyal to Saul, but Saul began to get jealous of David. He heard the victory jingle. Saul has killed thousands and David tens of thousands. And he became very, very resentful. Now Jonathan, his son, was just the opposite. He was quite willing to give up his throne for David, but Saul planned to kill David. And David was forced to run away. That's where we pick up the story this week. Now when David ran away from Saul, from, from Gibeah, where Saul was, he didn't have an army. He had a few young men with him, and and that was it. And they had no food and no weapons. And so he learned what it was like to be a fugitive with with no means of support. He went to a place called Nob. Now the main attraction at Nob was the tabernacle of God. Uh, The priest there was a man called Ahimelech. And now when David arrives, Ahimelech is a little bit nervous about meeting him. But David assures him, look, he's, he's quite legit. He's on a secret mission from Saul, he says. And he asks for some food. 
Amen. It doesn't have any ordinary bread, just special temple bread, bread that was supposed to be eaten by the priests only, a part of God's provision for those who are serving him. But Abimelech checks that David and his men are ceremonially clean and he gives the bread to David. David accepts it. For he is God's anointed one. He is in God's service. This is God's provision for him. But he does notice someone at the tabernacle. Someone whose presence makes him feel somewhat uneasy. His name is Doeg. He is an Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. David dismisses the man from his mind, asks the priest for weapons, and Ahimelech gives him the sword of Goliath. So David takes the food, and takes the weapons, and off he goes. He goes to Gath, a Philistine town. Saul wouldn't be able to get him there, would he? And perhaps he thinks he wouldn't be recognized. Maybe he's grown a beard or something since he was fighting Goliath. But if so, he's wrong. They do recognize him. In fact, in chapter 21, verse 11, they recognize him as the king of Israel way before the Israelites do. Verse 11, they say, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And they take him to Ashish, their king. David's scared now. He's been caught by the Philistines. Out of the frying pan, into the fire. So what he does is, he acts as if he's mad. He pretends to be insane. He's scratching at the door and dribbling through his beard. And so when King Asher sees him, he goes, Why do you bring this man to my house? Get him out of here. And so David escapes. He goes to a place, now beginning at chapter 22, called the cave of Adullam. There his family joined him. They've become fugitives as well. Because surely Saul would be after them. Because of their connection with David. A whole whole lot of other people joined them too. People who were marginalized. Who were dissatisfied with their lot in Israel. They come to him. They're described in verse 2 of chapter 22. As everyone who is in distress. Everyone who is in debt. Everyone who is bitter in soul. Gathered to him. And he became captain over them. And there are about 400 men. So David now has got a small army. Not a great army, but a band of merry men nonetheless. Now if David's family is with him, it's natural that he's worried about his parents, isn't he? So he works out a plan for them to be looked after. Takes them to Moab, does some kind of deal with the Moabite king, who agrees to take care of them, at, at least for a while. Notice how David deals with his parents. See, he makes sure that they're looked after, that they're they're his responsibility. But he doesn't let thoughts of their comfort stop him from the task God set before him. He's the anointed one. The anointed one suffers, and members of his family who suffer as well, even though they've nothing really to do with it. He doesn't go, well, I don't want to get my family into trouble, so I'll stop being the anointed one. He makes sure they're looked after. But the fact remains, they would have been a lot better off if he just stayed looking after the sheep. Jesus did the same with his mum, didn't he? Made sure she was cared for. On the cross, he asked John to look after her. But he didn't avoid the cross. 
because it would cause his, it would cause his mum too much pain. It's the same for us. We've got an obligation to look after our parents or our children. Jesus was very critical of those who use religion as an excuse not to care for their parents. It is also very clear that our ultimate loyalty is to him. To love our parents, to make sure they're looked after, but Jesus is the king of our lives. And if Jesus is king, there may be times that what he wants for us and what our parents want for us is different. And sometimes, like David, like Jesus, our families will be disadvantaged from a worldly point of view. We have an obligation to look after our parents and our children, but their aspirations cannot determine our lives. So having fulfilled his parental obligations, David goes back to the cave. But God doesn't want him hiding there. The prophet Gad spoke to him in verse 5 of chapter 22. He said, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart. Go into the land of Judah. So David departed. He went to the forests of Hereth, which are in the land of Judah. See, David is God's anointed. He's the, he's the leader, but he does what the prophet says. And that's the pattern he will follow when he becomes king. He will rule God's people under the word of God. And friends, that's the kind of king that Israel really needed. Someone whose kingship is exercised under God's rule. Someone who, unlike Saul, would be God's regent. Because the leader of God's people must be someone who listens to God's word. So that really, God is ruling by his word through his king. Now, Jesus, the ultimate leader, fulfilled that role in a unique way, because, because he is God, he is God's word, and he is God's king. Turned out to be everything. But the point here remains that God's king rules under God's word. In other nations, the king was the absolute ruler. But in Israel, that was not to be the case. The word of God, spoken by the prophet, outranks him. And friends, that must be true at every level of leadership among God's people. Leaders are to lead God's people under God's word. We have God's word written down for us in the scriptures, and Christian leaders are to lead by expounding the scriptures. But to stand under the word of God, not over and above it. And not to change it, to judge it, to ignore it, but to humbly submit to it. So David did what the prophet said. The anointed one submitted to God's word. Meanwhile, back at Gibeah, Saul is sitting under a tamarisk tree, spear in hand, and his servants are all around him. And he is very angry. In fact, he's shouting at his men. Look at verse uh, 7 of chapter 22. Here's what he says. Hear now, people of Benjamin. Will the son of Jesse, that's David, give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that you, all of you have conspired against me? No one is close to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or disclosed to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait at this day. He's pretty insecure, isn't he? He's accusing his own men of treachery. 
Well, among Saul's men there, listening to this speech, was none other than Doeg the Edomite. He knew what he saw. And if Saul found out that he knew and didn't tell, well, Saul would turn on him. And so he spoke out in verses 9 and 10. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech the son of Ahitub, and he inquired of the Lord for him, and gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Oh. I'm sure you could hear a pin drop. Ahimelech, the priest of God, was supporting David. The king quickly sends for Ahimelech, and not only Ahimelech, but his whole family, all the priests who are at Nob are told to come immediately to Gibeah. And so they make the trip. And Saul says to Ahimelech in verse 13, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword, and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Ahimelech defends himself and defends David, in fact, in verse 14. He says, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time I've inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of this, much or little. Saul's not impressed. You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And Saul gives orders to his men to kill God's priests. They're with David, he says. They knew he fled, and no one told me, so kill them all. But none of Saul's men dared to kill the priests of the Most High God. They just stand there. And the priests just stand there. And Saul has time to change his mind. What would he do? He turned to Doeg, the Edomite, in verse 18. You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg, the Edomite, kills them. All 85 of them. And Saul was responsible for the death of 85 of God's priests. Could it get worse? Well, it does. In the very next verse, Doeg the Edomite goes back to Nob, presumably with his men, and in Nob, the city of priests, verse 19, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey and sheep, he put to the sword. Isn't that terrible? The only one who escapes is one of Ahimelech's sons, a man named Abithar, who flees to David and enters his service. Doeg the Gentile does to an Israelite town what Israel was only meant to do to God's enemies and only as executioners in God's righteous judgment against them. Saul, the king of Israel, was responsible for the massacre of his own people. On the other hand, David is saving God's people. In chapter 23, God tells him to fight the Philistines who are harassing an Israelite town called Calah. And he does. 
God gives them into his hands. He strikes the Philistines with a great blow and he saves the people of Calah. And once again, David is the saviour of God's people. Now, Saul hears he's in Calah. And he thinks he's trapped. He says to himself in verse 7, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. Isn't it amazing how Saul could fool himself with talk about God? Oh, God's given him into my hand, isn't it? And he's talking to himself, he's not talking to anyone else. You see, using religious language, even to yourself, is no guarantee of godliness. Saul prepares to attack the city. He doesn't have a standing army like the nations do today. He summons the people of Israel, the men of Israel, to come out for war. And David gets wind of the summons. He calls on Abithar, the priest, to consult God for him. Now, assuming he stays in Calah, would Saul come and attack him there? Answer, yes. Would the men of Calah hand him over to Saul instead of trying to defend him? Answer, yes. So David and his men, which now number 600, leave Calah. And they go out to the hill country, to the wilderness of Ziph. And it's there in the wilderness that Jonathan, Saul's son, finds David again in a place called Horesh. Verse 16 tells us that Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. He strengthened his hand in God. On verse 16 of chapter 23. Now how does he do that? How do you strengthen someone's hand in God? Well, he reminds him of God's promise. He says to him, verse 17, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. See, God had promised David the kingship. And so no matter what happened, no matter how much he was marginalized, no matter how many times he was betrayed, no matter how much he was hunted, he would be secure. David shall be king. That was God's promise. And so Saul would not be able to stop him. Because God's promises are secure. And brothers and sisters, that's a great encouragement for us, isn't it? We encourage each other, not by telling each other how good we are, but by reminding each other of God's promises. Because we too have been given great and precious promises. We've been promised forgiveness of sins, the Holy Spirit, eternal life with Christ, treasure in heaven, a future in a new creation. Like David, we're on the winning side, but sometimes we need encouragement. Sometimes we need someone to strengthen our hand in God. Because we can get discouraged sometimes. We can look at all the battles and all the betrayals and all the disappointments and we can forget God's promises. So Jonathan strengthened David's hand in God. And let's, let's do that for each other. And after he assures David that he will be king, Jonathan adds a very interesting observation at the end of verse 17. He says, Saul, my father, also knows this. You see, Saul had long known that God had given his kingdom to someone else. 
Samuel told him that years and years before when he disobeyed God. And now it was pretty darn clear who that someone else was. Saul was fighting a losing battle, but he kept on fighting anyway. How silly is that? And yet it happened all the time. And it keeps happening all the time. The forces of evil in this world, the devil and all his angels, they were conquered at the cross. They know their destiny is destruction, but they fight on anyway. And there are people who join them. People who know they're fighting a losing battle against the living God, but, but still want to fight. It's so silly. But people do it anyway. I hope you don't. David and Jonathan renewed their covenant. The fact they'd made to each other. David stays at Horesh. Jonathan goes home. Now remember that Horesh is in the wilderness of Ziph, named, it would seem, after the town of Ziph, which was in the area. The people of Ziph, the Ziphites, know that David is hiding in the strongholds of Horesh, parts of the wilderness that are very inaccessible. And they know the exact hill he's based at. And they send word to Saul to tell him. Now, note that Ziph was in Judah. And David was from Judah. So really they're betraying one of their very own people. And Saul responds in pious language in verse 21. He says, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you had compassion on me. Go and make more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is and who has seen him there. For it is told me that he is very cunning. See therefore and take note of all the lurking places where he hides and come back to me with the with sure information and then I will go with you. If he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. So they go and they spy and they send the information back to Saul. Saul heads out. When Saul heads out, David moves on to another place, the wilderness of Maon. But Saul and his men pursue him there. And Saul gets nearer and nearer. And in fact, he gets to the point where, where David's on one side of the mountain, which is really a large rock, and Saul's on the other side of the same mountain. And David is hurrying to get away, and Saul's men are closing in, and they're just about to get in for the queue when a message comes for Saul. The Philistines are attacking. You better get back right now. So just to see things seem desperate for David, Saul calls off the hunt. And so they call the place the Rock of Escape. After that narrow escape, David leaves the place. He moves on to a place called Engedi. And something very exciting there happens, but happens there. But if you want to know what it is, you have to wait till next week. Or read on ahead. Well, I've looked at some very interesting stories here, haven't we? We've seen some examples, but what really is the significance of this passage for us? These stories of David's escapades. How are they meant to apply to us today? Why has God put them in here? But before we answer that question, we must first understand how this passage points forward to Christ. Okay, If you've been coming to church for the last few weeks, if you've been listening to sermons, we all know that David is someone who points forward to Jesus. David was the anointed one. He was the Messiah. The one God chose to be king. And Jesus, the son of David, was a true king. The heir of David who was greater than he. And so David, like Jesus, was the king 
God chose to set over his people. His life was a foreshadowing of the life of Jesus. He pointed forward to Jesus in many different ways. We've seen some of them over the last few weeks. We see some of them again here. Remember, he wasn't someone you would expect to be king from his appearance. But he was the king God chose for himself because God looks on the heart. Remember how he was anointed secretly before becoming king publicly. How before he became king, he first saved his people. He's a savior king. He represented them and fought the battle on their behalf. And we saw last week how he was rejected. He was the object of suspicion and hatred. We notice how Israel's leaders of Jesus' day set out to, to kill him for selfish motives. And Saul, the leader of Israel's day, did the same. The biggest parallel we see in today's chapters between David and Jesus is how David suffers first before he becomes king. And just like David, Jesus had to suffer. David was marginalized, made into a fugitive, a shameful thing, exiled from society, forced to live in the wilderness. And like David, Jesus was marginalized. As we saw last week, he was for a time forced to live in a small town near the wilderness as his enemy sought his life. Uh, but the ultimate in marginalization and exile, in fact, is, is execution, being pushed away, be, being killed. And the marginalization of Jesus culminated in death itself, death on the cross. David was chased like a criminal. Jesus was killed like a criminal. Like David, Jesus had to suffer before he became king. David was betrayed, betrayed by Doeg, betrayed by the Ziphites from his own town, his own tribe. And he would have been betrayed by the men of Calah if God hadn't warned him to flee. David knew the feeling of betrayal. Like David, Jesus was betrayed. For 30 pieces of silver, Judas betrayed his master to the chief priests and elders who were trying to take his life. Handed over by the Jews, his own people, to the Gentile Romans to be crucified. Like Jesus, David was betrayed by his own. Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Like David, Jesus had to suffer before he became king. But notice how here God saved David. There were times where it looked like Saul would have won, like the time he was nearly caught on the mountain, or the time he found himself in a walled village. Or when he, when he, or he also, we talk about the time when he, when he saved his people, but, but did so at great risk to himself. But just as God used David to save his people, God in turn saved him. He warned him to get out of Keilah. He turned Saul away in the wilderness of Maon, snatching David, as it were, from the jaws of death, and eventually made him king of Israel. Again, this foreshadows what, how God was going to save the Messiah, though through, in Jesus the stakes were much higher because the salvation is much higher. David was nearly killed a number of times, snatched from the jaws of death as king. But Jesus actually died to save us. Gave his life on the cross to take our sins and our punishment so we can be rescued and freed. Then like David, he was saved. Snatched from the jaws of death by his resurrection. Unlike David, Jesus was really truly dead. But God saved him anyway. Raised him from the dead and made him king of all. So David is a type of Christ, a foreshadowing of Christ, a picture, a pointer that points forward to the real Messiah, the ultimate king, 
the Lord Jesus. So where do we fit in? Who are we in the story? Well, we're not like David, are we? He points forward to Jesus, not us. But we could be like those who relate to him, the God's anointed one. Because like the people in the story, all of us have some kind of relationship with God's anointed king, whether good or bad. How do people relate to God's king here? Well, they were the priests at Nom. They were people who helped David. Now, of course, when you think about the incident of you realize immediately that the parallel between David and Jesus is imperfect because David's imperfect. If, if David were the perfect Messiah, you wouldn't need Jesus, would you? David, let's face it, lied to the priests. But Jesus never did. No deceit was ever found in his mouth. But despite the fact that he lied to them, it still remains true that the priests at Nob, led by Ahimelech, helped David, God's chosen king. And they were massacred for it. See, being on the side of the anointed one doesn't necessarily mean things will go your way. Yes, he'll be king in the end, but those who opposed him were terribly violent against those who helped him along the way. It's the same with us, isn't it? 165,000 people die each year because they follow Jesus as king. It's more than 18 people on average every hour. It's a pretty horrific statistic, isn't it? And many, many more suffer abuse and rejection and marginalization and discrimination and persecution. The evil one hates those who help the cause of the king. Though on the day of judgment I'd rather be one of those massacred priests than Doeg the Edomite. And imagine the awful punishment that awaits him for the evil he did that day. The priesthood at Nob reminds us that helping the king may be costly. Another person who relates to David was that Philistine king of Gath. He was an enemy of God's people. And all he could see when he looked at David was a, a madman. And he said, get him out of my sight. He's just pathetic. Not worth bothering about. And you know, some people see Jesus that way. Not worth bothering about. Again, the parallel is not perfect because Jesus was, well, David was pretending to be mad and Jesus wasn't. But even as he walked on earth, members of his family thought he was mad. We saw that in our, Bible, our New Testament reading today. They dismissed him as king, just wanted to take him home. Just like the king of Gath, they, miss, they underestimated him. Don't underestimate Jesus, will you? The Philistines paid for their mistake. David left Gath, left Gath, saved a few little towns from the Philistines, even while he was a fugitive from Saul, foreshadowing the fact that he would eventually beat down the Philistines decisively and subdue them when he became king. It's the same with Jesus. As we read on our New Testament reading, we saw how he cast many demons from individuals. And the religious leaders of his day dismissed him as demon-possessed because he was able to cast out demons. But, but when he was casting out demons, he was saving individuals from the enemy. And foreshadowing the big victory that he would win over Satan and all his forces on the cross. So he mustn't dismiss David too quickly. 
doesn't dismiss Jesus too quickly, like the king of Gath dismissed David. Don't underestimate him, because you may live to regret it. The incident of Gath warns the enemies of Jesus not to underestimate the king. Are we like the crow at Adullam, who became David's men? Disaffected with life under the old regime, wanting something better? Ah, they were an odd assortment of people, weren't they? People that society thought were no hopers. People with difficulties, with issues, people who couldn't fit in, people who were bitter. In some ways, they're our minders of the disciples of Jesus we read in Mark. Yet, under the leadership of the Anointed One, by following Him, they made a difference. They defeated the Philistines with Him, saving towns in Israel. They suffered with Him, facing death loyally as Saul, the enemy, drew near. They were His faithful friends, and He was their captain. And many of us here are like that. We've got all kinds of problems. But that doesn't stop us from serving the king. He does not bar us from his army. He warns us that suffering is likely. But he takes us and he uses us for his kingdom. We stand with him as his people. And as a team together, we work with him to save God's people as his gospel is proclaimed. David's men remind us that though the world may not think much of us, we are fighting with the Lord. That's what counts. And then we had Saul's men, who followed their leader, fighting the true Messiah. Some of them might have been decent people, like the ones who couldn't bring themselves to kill the priests. Some might be dreadful people, like Doeg the Edomite, the, the Gentile who massacred God's priests and people. But both were on the same side, the wrong side. Both were in opposition to the Messiah. See, it's dangerous, isn't it, to simply follow the leadership of the day. To simply go with what is most influential around you. Because some leaders are evil men. Who say all the right things, who even use religious language like Saul, but they oppose the anointed one. They do not submit to Christ as king, and they oppose him, and they teach their followers to do the same. They may, domesticate, they may domesticate him by calling him a good moral teacher. They may relativize him by calling him one prophet out of many, one guru out of many, even one incarnation of a deity out of many. But they will not submit to him as the one and only Lord and King. And if you're one of their followers, you're automatically, like Saul's men, in opposition to the Messiah. Saul's men remind us not to follow these Jesus, uh, not to follow those who oppose the rule of Jesus the King. The other people that we saw relating to David here are the men of Calah. Remember, David saved them from the Philistines, so they welcomed him into their town, and yet they were ready to betray him to Saul when it looked like Saul would attack them. They weren't prepared to suffer with David. Friends, we mustn't treat Jesus like they were prepared to treat David. Jesus saved us from sin and death and hell, and we welcome him into our lives, but will we suffer with him? We will, will we be willing to remain with him?
when his enemies attack? Or will we betray him like the men of Cala and like Judas of old? The incident at Cala reminds us not to betray the king when we're under threat. And then we had Jonathan. Good old Jonathan, son of Saul, whose natural affinity would have been to his father, whose natural response would have been to a fight for his throne, but who acted in the very opposite way. He knew God had chosen David as king. He accepted God's will. He submitted to David and encouraged him in his task. That's a great example for us, isn't it? Because by nature, we too would be in opposition to Jesus. For if Jesus is king of our lives, we can't be, and we want to be. But by the grace of God, by the work of the Holy Spirit inside us, we do what is contrary to our sinful nature. We leave that background, and we embrace the true king. We submit to him. We let him rule, and we don't do it begrudgingly. We do it joyfully and willingly from the heart, like Jonathan. Because God's spirit is at work in our hearts to cause us to love him as our Lord and Saviour. The example of Jonathan reminds us to lovingly submit to the king. And finally there were the Ziphites, the people of Ziph. They betrayed David to Saul and almost got him killed. They were the opposite of Jonathan because they were people from David's own tribe and you'd expect them to be loyal to him but their loyalties lay elsewhere. And their example warns us that there are those whom you thought ought to be loyal to the God's anointed one, but they're not. Not everyone in Judah was on the side of David. And not everyone in church is on the side of Jesus. There have been and there will always be people who come to church, who are active in church, who may even lead churches, who are not in submission to the rightful king of the church. And they end up causing problems for those who are. The Ziphites remind us that not everyone whom we would expect to be loyal to Jesus really is. So in conclusion, many people in Israel 3,000 years ago were forced to face the question, what will you do with David, God's anointed king, the one whom God has chosen to be king for ancient Israel? The priests helped him. The king of Gath despised him. His men fought for him. Saul's men fought against him. Jonathan submitted to him. Many betrayed him. But the question that people in KL need to face today is not about David, because he's old news. The question we need to face is, what will we do with Jesus? The anointed one, God's chosen king for this world. He is God's king who is meant to be ruling us today. Will we help him or despise him? Fight with him or attack him? Submit to him or betray him? What will you do with Jesus? Neutral you cannot be. One day your heart will be asking... What will he do with me?